This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 30. Hello my loves. I feel like this week's episode is going to be up there with some of my all-time favourites. But I really struggled to put a title to it because we cover so much in the conversation that you're about to listen to. Dolly Alderton is a writer, director and journalist with a weekly podcast as well. I first met her when we were both panellists at an event in London alongside Emma Gannon and I just found so much of what she said that day in her answers really resonated with me and it stayed with me long afterwards. So as you'll hear in the following conversation, she is a witty and self-possessed and savvy woman living the dream really as a freelance writer and a creative in London. Her first book, Everything I Know About Love, is going to be out with Penguin in the spring. So I called her up to find out how she got to that milestone, what wisdom she's learned along the way, and whether she'd like to be my new best friend. (laughs) Also, a heads up that there is some marvellous adult language scattered throughout this episode, so just be mindful. Hi, Dolly. Hi, Sarah. So nice to hear from you. It is amazing to have you on the show. Thank you for talking to us. Oh, thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm so glad that the uh, video isn't currently on on our Skype call because you'd still see that I'm still in bed at 10 to 11. (laughs) That's the whole point of being self-employed, though, surely. I know. And do you know what? I used to feel bad about it. But actually, the only time I do it is when I've had a really tough work week, which I have this week. And sometimes I'm just, my bed's so comfy and I just think, oh, why don't I just do a bit of writing in my PJs with my lovely pillows and a coffee? So that's what I'm doing today. <laughs> that's the dream. That's definitely the montage you build in your head when you plan to go freelance or self-employed. Although, like, in your head, you, I've always got, like, good hair and, and makeup and stuff when I'm in bed, which is not the reality. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. In my head, there's a woman even though I've now been freelance for over two years, there's still a woman in my head when I think of a freelance writer who lives in a, like a quite a big house in Hampstead <laughs> and she has a study at the top of her house, like an attic room study and a garden with like a quince tree and a dog by her feet and she has like slouchy clothes on but, but still is like impeccably chic and she's wearing you know, like cashmere leggings. So yep. she has her hair in, in, a, in a perfectly coiffed, messy bun and kind of <laughs> makeup. And she's sort of looking pensive and has a lovely anthropology mug of tea. I still have failed on every <laughs> single count other than the anthropology mug. How would she afford that house as a freelance writer? That's not how it works. <laughs> I know, it's a bullshit dream, isn't it? <laughs> she needs to win the lottery first. Yeah. For anyone who's not come across your work yet, could you give us a quick introduction to you and everything you do? Yeah, of course. So I suppose my main job is I'm a freelance journalist. I am pretty monogamous to the Sunday Times style. So that's my kind of main outlet that I write for. I did have a dating column with them for two years. And um, now I write about, for them, I write about, I do interviews, I write uh, kind of human takes, kind of funny everyday takes on fashion, relationships, social trends. I also write for women's monthly magazines on kind of similar themes. I write quite a lot about female friendship 
So that's my journalism. I also co-host a podcast called The Hilo with a friend of mine who's a journalist called Pandora Sykes, which is a weekly news and pop culture podcast. I also write and direct for TV, mainly with my one of my very close friends, Lauren Benstead. So we write scripts together. We've got two in development at the moment, one about Brexit, but it's not as boring as it sounds, <laughs> and one about polyamory, Ooh. yeah, which fascinates me. And then I've got a book coming out in February called Everything I Know About Love, which is a memoir. So not much, really. You kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Taking it easy, really. Yeah, I've decided it's the year to kick back, uh, (laughs) like George Michael in the Club Tropicana video. (laughs) And the thing you haven't mentioned in there, which also really fascinates me, is you have your weekly-ish newsletter, the Dolly Mail. Yeah, it's very generous of you to call it weekly-ish. It was (laughs) weekly-ish. And then I have had a bit of a hiatus with it since Book Madness Mm. started. So I haven't sent one out for a few months, but I'm planning some issues now because I really miss doing it so I'm going to try and push one out bi-monthly or monthly you know I think it was a sort of Damocles for me to have said at the beginning it was a weekly newsletter Mm -hmm. and I think I've since said it's a bit unmanageable well very unmanageable but I think it's fine I think content creators can't believe I've just said that phrase sometimes get a bit martyry about my, you know, my people need this content a certain amount of time. They need this regularity as if they're a toddler, you know, they need a routine, otherwise their world will fall apart. And actually, uh, most people don't really care as long as when it comes out, it's good, particularly if they're not paying for it. So I'm, I feel less of a pressure now. I used to feel a big pressure with that. I feel less of a pressure with pushing it out. And I would just prefer to do it when I have the time and I know that I can do it well. I think you've chosen quite savvily to have it as a newsletter for that as well, because the problem, of course, with a blog is if you stop posting, people stop stopping by and it kind of drops from their routine. Totally, totally. But no one's going to unsubscribe just because you've not sent one out. They're just going to forget you and then remember you when you turn up again. Yeah, interestingly, because I get my MailChimp reports every day still. And amazingly I still get I have yet to have a day without a new follower even though it's been dormant for three months but I never ever lose a follower sorry subscriber I should say I never ever lose a subscriber the only time I lose a subscriber is when I send a bloody one out then I get a huge list (laughs) you know 53 people have unsubscribed yeah every time it's nice and soul destroying isn't it (laughs) so funny I do just I find it quite funny now I think I used to take it much more personally but I can also just tell now there are certain I'm sure you have this as well with your work where there are certain times I've sent a newsletter out and I'm like oh this is not going to go down well this one this is not going to connect with people as much as the one I did before or you know this is one people are going to really like and more often than not the way I predict it it does fall out that way. I like to think of it though as like kind of panning for gold and you're shaking out Mm. the people who are not really your true audience anyway. Yeah and also you know I I respect their decision like I, I constantly unsubscribe from stuff and it's not me angrily going oh I hate 
pass. And I hate that stupid <laughs> newsletter. It's me just going, oh, Jesus, another thing in my yeah. inbox. I can't deal with it, you know. So it's not personal. So I, I try to be a bit thick-skinned about it. And um, we should probably say what your newsletter normally consists of because it's we talk a lot about kind of mailing lists and newsletters and audience ownership on this podcast. And I, I like the way mm. you use yours. I think it would be quite inspiring to a lot of people to hear about it. Thank you very much. So it started as a kind of, I suppose, format-wise, I was really inspired by the Lenny letter. So it started as a, as a much denser sort of magazine, but it, I mean, it literally was taking two days to collate. And it was, when it was a tiny letter at the very beginning, it started with, the whole thing is illustrated so that all the headers are illustrated by a brilliant illustrator called Polly Crossman. And so it started with an essay from me at the top, which was kind of like a personal piece. Sometimes it was hooked onto new stuff. More often than not, it wasn't. It's a kind of pondering some things. I'm very good at pondering as a journalist. And sadly, pondering has very little space in mainstream media, quite rightly, <laughs> quite indulgent. So it's me pondering, you know, why I love the rain or why I hate the song Dancing Queen by ABBA for basically a thousand words and then a right either a piece or an interview with someone normally it's a piece from a guest writer and more often than not these were pals of mine and obviously very frustratingly I couldn't pay them because the newsletter actually costs me money to send yeah MailChimp gets expensive once you rack up followers I mean I'm so aware that it's sitting there dormant and it's costing me upwards of 80 quid a month but you know I take other work in other places to, to, to so I can afford to do it. But then, yeah, so it would the way I would tempt them is I would say, first and foremost, I can obviously plug to whatever you want. And now it's nearly 9,000 subscribers, which is still modest in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, for most people, that's triple their Twitter following. So mm. for journalists, that can be that can be tempting, particularly as a lot of people, a lot of editors and commissioning editors were, were subscribers. So I thought, it could be a place that that could be a nice showcase. And newsletters do convert really well. Like people click from emails far more than they do from Twitter or anywhere else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also, I think it's editors are so journalism is so fickle, and it's such it's such. I've really noticed this for like a industry that should be about intellect and integrity. So much of a freelancer's life is based on what other cool editors or magazines think of them <laughs> so I really noticed that when I get a big juicy piece or a big juicy scoop or interview suddenly other editors will get in touch and say we'd really like you we think you'd be a great fit right. for the magazine you know which, which is annoying because as I said journalists are like geeky introverts like writing it's, it should not be the industry where it's assessed on how the stock of how cool <laughs> we are but yeah so I think that sometimes like when writers have a vote of confidence with each other I think Made Not that people say, oh, she's been on the Dolly Mail, she must be commissioned. But I think it's more about just like people having votes of confidence in each other. Um, so I'd have a guest post from them. And then that had every week a kind of customised, bespoke illustration from Polly that would go with the theme of the piece. And then there was a shopping section, which is seven things normally from... Maybe it was eight. I think I based it on the, the amount of discs on Desert Island Discs. That's <laughs> how my brain works. I think that's a good selection number of some stuff on the internet. So that can be interiors, food, clothes, shoes, useful stuff for the house, whatever. And, and then there was a book review 
and then a recipe of something that I I've made that week and then a list of links my favorite kind of a collation of stuff from the internet so good articles good new music whatever but as I said that was oh and I must say as well in the interest of full disclosure as the MailChimp and Instapage cost was uh, happened when I went over to MailChimp I then started using skim links on my shopping section sure to try break even on the 80 quid a month um so yeah that was the beginning and then I've pared it down slightly as I've gone along because it's just it's taken uh it was taking so much time and actually feedback I was getting from a lot of readers was it was too big and cumbersome anyway I'm no longer surprised that you're not able to do it regularly (laughs) that's more than most people post on their blog in a month so yeah I had underestimated quite how long that content creation takes and it actually gave me a newfound respect for people who do blogs and who churn out that kind of content and really how much craft and and work and meticulous editing goes into that which is even scarier actually with a newsletter because once it's gone there's no bringing it back for edits yeah I've really embarrassed myself a few times with that actually (laughs) it's hell particularly as people just love pointing out your mistakes oh yeah the emails you get with people saying do you know that you've put this yes so what I find really interesting, I suppose, about you you choosing to do it as a newsletter is that everything else you've been doing was much more kind of broadcast in the sense that it's like, you know, it's yeah. via print or it's via podcast. But this was something where you got to kind of own that audience and and hold on to them and have direct mm-hmm. control of what you say. So there was obviously no no editor in between you like there would be with your journalism work. Was that like a yeah. conscious yeah. choice or was it really just that you were enjoying other people's newsletters and thought you'd have a go? It's definitely a conscious choice. It was because I'd gone freelance in the August and I started it in the January. And it was because in that time of being freelance, I hadn't quite anticipated how much when you come to pitching as a journalist to newspapers or websites or magazines, how much this thing called the news peg, the dreaded news peg, was something that dictated what you could or couldn't write. So I have no idea why editors are so obsessed with this. And one day they will realise no one fucking cares (laughs) if at the top of a piece about something really interesting, there's some stupid stat from some stupid PR agency (laughs) about some tiny group of people off in the middle of nowhere in a in a you know soulless room who've done market research <laughs> that suddenly has the scoop that you know three out of five women I don't know don't change their tampon enough or whatever <laughs> I don't know why but it's it's for some reason editorial is still dictated by this very old-fashioned model that the only way that you can write something the only way the reader will care if there's this news hook something relevant at the top so as I said a statistic that that basically means shit all anyway. Yeah, a statistic that means absolutely nothing. Something a bloody celebrity has done, which again means nothing. You know, the, the way that you gauge trends, and this is why style is so brilliant and I love writing for them and, that, and it's why they're so relevant. The way you gauge trends is when you go out for brunch with your girlfriends or you go out to a meeting and it's what everyone's talking about or you suddenly see everyone on the street is wearing something or suddenly everyone on Twitter is using a word or something. Yeah. That's what trend that's what the zeitgeist is in, in an authentic way rather than 
some flimsy piece of nonsense research or something. <laughs> a press release that went to everybody's inbox the more often than not is pushing a product yeah. or what some kardashian is doing who lives in a totally different realm to us anyway you know i have i have no interest in the relationship ins and outs of two hollywood stars who are getting divorced so i would be much more interested to hook it on three of my friends who i've been speaking to who have all realized they've been going on a certain type of date or their husbands are all doing a certain type of thing, you know, something like that. Anyway, so those news hooks were just crippling because it means that I would have an idea for a piece or I would notice something that, that was happening or that was being talked about and I'd take it to an editor and they go, oh, well, no, we need a stat to hook it onto or whatever. And also sometimes there are just, sometimes journalists or writers just get ideas for things that they have a lot of thoughts on and it just comes out of nowhere. Like, Stuart Heritage at The Guardian, I did a talk with him recently about freelancing. Suddenly, he told the story that he was um, suddenly hit by this realisation one summer that he just hated seagulls. (laughs) And he just knew that he had loads to say about seagulls. And he knew that it would be really funny. And he knew it would tap into something that millions of British people who've had seaside holidays would think. But no one would take it. And he kept pushing it to The Guardian. No, no. I mean, what's going to be a news hook for a fucking seagull? You can't wait around <laughs> your whole life waiting for a seagull to be in the news so you can finally write this piece. So in the end, he wrote it for free for his his alma mater, his student paper. And I read it and it's a brilliant piece. <laughs> so that's what the newsletter was for, really. It was for me to be able to write those pieces that I knew would be good pieces that I knew would have a home nowhere else in publishing sorry that was a very long answer (laughs) no but it's a really interesting answer because obviously print is changing it's it's dying in a lot of places and I wonder if some of those outmoded ways of commissioning and the ideas of what people want are things that are going to have to change because as content creators online we know exactly that thing you said that it is going to resonate and it is going to appeal to an awful lot Mm, of people and because we're in direct contact with our audience like we we get that feedback we know whereas when you put something out in you know as an editor you put something out in a magazine by the time it comes to print you're already working on the next issue you're not really necessarily I assume looking to see how well the piece about tampons or whatever you know that's that's a really smart thing to say and like I hadn't thought of it like that but you're completely right and I think that moment to reflect and engage is something that means like I would never have the audacity or arrogance to turn around to an editor and say I know what the people want (laughs) because they would have much more of an awareness of how magazines work than I do but I think when you are making you know magazines are dying we all know that the power of good journalism is that the journalists followers and readers will buy a magazine because that journalist has written something in it and I do think people still do that and those journalists know what their readers are interested in of course you know your audience you can't speak for the whole magazine audience sure but you can speak for your own yeah and there must be somewhere you can meet in the middle I think and so the newsletter was really kind of I guess your magazine without the editor interfering yeah yeah and some you know sometimes I got it right and sometimes I didn't I can't say that every single piece I knocked it out the park and everyone loved it and was fascinated and engaged with it sometimes people just didn't get it and perhaps I was too indulgent or I had slightly missed the mark but most of the time you know I think it really strengthened my chances of getting a book deal I do think that that's interesting yeah because I think a lot of people said to me that they felt like it was the closest it was the most authentic 
my voice had been because you know and people who were very close to me said it's the closest to hearing you speak uh, when we have dinner or, or it's the closest we feel to your heart and your soul and as cheesy as that sounds I did feel that because the other thing is with magazines is that understandably so much of it is about page furniture so so much of it is we need 750 words Mm. on xyz we need you to mention this person we need this expert whatever and the freedom to just move around a bit in that space of a newsletter and shake it out a bit and 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 be a bit creative and and not worry about overspilling with words or not writing enough words or have you got the bloody expert quote in have as I said have you got the stat in it meant that I could just relax into into trying some stuff out and still to this day you know that newsletter hasn't been very regular for a while it's it's yet to reach a two-year anniversary and if anyone ever talks to me about my writing which isn't that often but if anyone ever does approach me and say I loved your xyz it's it's not really the column I had or the pieces I've written for women's magazines more often than not it's a piece I wrote for that newsletter wow that's really powerful Mm. yeah I I think I don't know but then but also it's it is a responsibility as I'm sure you know better than anyone (laughs) Sarah is that it is a responsibility to have that space where you're being unmonitored and you're responsible for it to not be a toddler and run wild (laughs) and to not let your ego run wild and think I can write whatever I want here I can post whatever I want here you know and still be an editor in your head yes it's that it's thinking like an editor and thinking of your audience yeah I guess you kind of touched on it there but I was wondering how much you felt it was a two-way channel when you were sending it like were you getting emails in response were people tweeting you in response yeah I got really nice emails in response did I get any negative ones? I don't think I did actually. But to be honest, it would be hard for them to be negative because I'm not naturally a kind of traditional opinions journalist. So actually the only one that I got negative feedback on, and it was obviously from a load of bloody men, was a piece I wrote about how I hated how women were creatively pigeonholed. And that was the most, and then also one I wrote about how I don't believe in wedding lists and a couple of women got a bit uppity about that (laughs) Um, and but those were the only two kind of straight opinion ones I did the rest of them are more kind of ruminations and stories good stories of either my life or my friends sometimes I would borrow stories from my friends that I thought were very funny obviously with their permission um or or talking about really general touchstones of life so there was one that I wrote that did quite well about why parents as you get older drive you mad and how as you get older it becomes more excruciating because you're even more aware of how little time you have with them so it's this horrible cycle of feeling impatient and then feeling angry at your impatience yes which which is a universal thing so that's those kind of ones they they did they did well and I got good reactions to them because they're not divisive because they're not divisive and I'm drawing on my own experience. So I talk about something generally and I say, personally, here's how it's manifested for me. I'm not telling people how it is, you know. The only the only negativity I got on that piece, I think I might have told you this when you and I did that panel together. Uh, and I think it's the worst email I've ever got as a journalist. 
And I've received many emails from, you know, moronic virgins who still live in their mum's basement <laughs> telling me I'm fat and ugly or I'm arrogant or I'm whatever. Sure. As, as sadly all women do on the internet. Yeah. But weirdly, the one that hurt me most was an email I got from a man who'd set up an anonymous email address, which said it was, I think I might still have it somewhere. Maybe I'll forward it to you. It will, it will make your blood boil. Saying how angry he was that I wasn't doing the, the newsletter weekly anymore. <laughs> and saying that he thought I was lazy. And then he pulled, and then he said, he pulled on examples of stuff that had happened that week. So he said, I see that you had the time to write a piece for Marie Claire. I see oh that God. you had the time to go to, Annabelle's for the Sunday Times style Christmas party. I see that you have the time for X, Y, Z. Why don't you just come out and be honest with us, your loyal readers, and, t- and tell the truth, which is you can't be asked, and you and you would prefer to do paid work. Oh my god! Where did you even start with that? I was really upset actually because I just felt like, how dare you? How dare you try and own me and my voice yes. and the work that I do for. For, for, that costs me money. Yes. How dare you try and claim some sort of fucking so male, like some ownership or that entitlement? And you know how, and it just, it, it also just made me despair. You know, it's so difficult to make money as a writer now. I, you know, I feel, and I'm, I've said this before, and I, I'm sorry if it makes me sound crass. I'm interested in making good money. I don't want to. The art is not just enough for me. I would like to have a comfortable life. And it's. I feel like it's a constant game as a writer to find these back doors of how you can pay your rent. You know, I'm going to work with a brand or I'm going to go do consultancy or maybe there's a clothes website who might have more money than a magazine who might want me to write for them or, you know, all this stuff. And mm. it's like constantly running on a hamster wheel as a writer to, and to try and make a good living. And to be accused of somehow that is lazy or negligent or mercenary or I don't know just made me so so upset and I think showed a real problem that we have with how we consume content absolutely it's actually something we've kind of touched on in in some recent episodes that that sort of it's very rare it is really rare but it's hard not to dwell on it because when it comes up it's like that and it's just so entitled and vicious yeah and I just think imagine if I'd said to him I don't know let's say he was an accountant if I said well you need to be doing someone's accounts for one day every week for no money and if you don't if you don't do that then you're letting everyone down and you're you've you've somehow betrayed a promise that was the like that was the kind of unsaid thing and you've given us something that we now want so it's your job to give it to us like greedy toddlers whenever we bang the fists and we want it did you reply i did i did i was very i never reply to negative emails normally i never engage with it but i was i was really as i said i was as you can probably tell <laughs> sorry i'm ranting about it I was I was upset and I again I don't normally do this but I posted it on Twitter because I just I didn't want to be martyry about it no one ever asked me to do a newsletter other than me you know that was my choice but I also reserve and retain the right then to do it as and when I please Absolutely. <laughs> um, as long as it's hopefully I always try and make it good when I do do it and put my heart into it and uh, the response I got to it was 
just across the board absolute fury on my behalf and a lot of and I didn't do this to get sympathy or to get praise but I also got a lot of lovely emails and dms from people and people still reference that tweet now it was it was retweeted a lot and they say I've always really appreciated the newsletter that you did and thank you so much and I know how much hard work that must have been you kind of need it after something like that after a blow you need to hear that actually that's not what everybody thinks yeah exactly so Twitter I know you're you're on Twitter a fair bit I'm on Twitter a fair bit too that's how I know do you use use Instagram as well yeah I love Instagram yeah (laughs) and anywhere else is that your only two social media homes Yes, it is. I think I prefer Instagram to Twitter these days. <laughs> I think a lot of people have gone that way. It's it's a, a more embracing community. Yeah, and also I suppose it's more about, you know, I think there might be less and less of a place for the kind of tweets that I do, which is more often than not telling a funny story of something that happened. You know, saw a man on a bus doing X, Y, Z, had a date and this happened this you know a friend just said this blah you know whatever to try and kind of be funny and or or you know sometimes be feel sometimes I'll tell a story if I think it might help someone or if it's a universal thing but there's so it's so understandably I understand why Twitter's like this because of the world that we're currently living in we need a space where people can shout and ask questions and I'd still really enjoy it and it's so useful and it really expands my mind a lot of the time and helps me ask questions but Instagram is more that traditional storytelling platform which I just really enjoy and I enjoy seeing other people's stories yeah that's definitely true it's interesting though because I always associate Twitter is a verbal platform and Instagram is a visual platform but you're right that there's 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 definitely room for both on Instagram and it picture the picture can just be kind of a lead into the story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And also you can tell stories visually, obviously. Yeah. And you have your podcast as well, which is a sort of a third storytelling medium, I suppose. Yes, yeah. And is that weekly? Yeah, that's weekly. We've I'm having a much needed fortnight off starting on Monday. So we try really hard. Well, we, we actually have to now that we have the obligation of uh, sponsorship money every week. If one of us is going away, we have to sandwich in an extra one to send out. So we've had to do three records this wow. week, two of which have, have been our first live shows. We did one on Monday and we were doing one in Selfridges tonight. How does the live thing feel then? Is it Does it work? Well, we're still kind of reflecting on it because we only literally just went out live on Wednesday, our first one. Exciting. I listened to it back. I think it did. I found it very nerve wracking. I did find it quite... Pandora was better with it than I was, I think. Yeah, I think that would be my problem is I'd, I'd get two in my own head. Yeah, and, and I, was, I was very aware of being watched. I mean, the thing is that I think is really crucial when you're doing a live podcast present record is I said this to Pandora at the top. I said, I think we sh- when we go out there, we need them on side and we need them to know that this is a behind the scenes glimpse into how we make this thing every week. And we need to feel like they're in on it, making it with us. So if we if we trip up or if we which we do, you know, more, you know how podcasts work. There'll be moments where you go, oh, can we take that sure. again? Or can you cut this out? to what I've said that word wrong or whatever. And I said, if we. If we and that's nerve wracking to know that you're going to have to say that in front of you know tonight's two hundred people, so I said I think we need to make them feel like they're in on the creative process with us, so then it can be kind of loose and 
fun and relaxed. What you don't want to feel is too presentational and formal. Like a show. Like a show, because then when you do have those moments of messing up, as you do when you're recording a podcast, you don't want them to feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. It's always the job of the person on stage, be it a comedian, be it a presenter, to make everyone feel like they're in safe hands. So if you mess up and 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 you've been super presentational and formal they'll feel on edge which you don't want and it will create a bad atmosphere and it means they won't have a nice evening so i think it's important we're still learning um as we go obviously tonight's our second one but we're we're learning how to um bring people in on it exciting i need to listen and catch up on them then and and hear how it goes oh thank you would you ever do a live one uh, i don't know it doesn't feel comfortable to me but I guess if I had the right person to talk to, because it is all about that kind of chemistry between the two of you, isn't it? Yeah, it would be, I would never obviously be able to do it on my own. I think it helps with Panda that she's like a, a buddy of, like yeah. a good friend of mine. So we have each other's backs on stage. You know, we, we would, if one of us was stumbling or we, we could just sense stuff right. with each other as friends. do. So I think that helps when you're when you're speaking live so you've like you've got all these different channels now you kind of it feels like you've got your fingers in lots of different pies which we all kind of do now I think you have to have this portfolio business to to keep everything going but which one do you think is the one where people are discovering you most now are your audience coming from the Sunday Times are they coming from the podcast do you do you have a sense of that yeah definitely the podcast I've been so surprised by it I always thought the podcast would be a really fun side project. And I think Pandora felt the same. And to my utter joy and and huge shock, I had no idea so many people listen to podcasts. I mean, I listen to podcasts constantly. Same. Yeah, have you been surprised? Yeah, it feels like a secret weapon. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And it feels like quite a magic time to be doing it, I yes, think. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's. I'm yet... To go out, this will sound very boastful, and I hope it, I, you realise I'm not being boastful, but it's more a comment on how far-reaching this pod, podcasting is that I hadn't anticipated. Every time I'm out in central London at the moment, some young girl will come up to me and say, I love your podcast. I love that. It's lovely, but I just, I'm always so surprised. I'm so grateful. But I just think, oh, I, I never thought that this would be the medium in which a woman's voice could be most heard. So it feels like we're gaining a really lovely community there. It's so funny you say that, actually, because I don't have my face out there an awful lot, just not Mm. really for any particular reason, but it's not on my podcast or anything. So I get that when people hear my voice. Oh, how funny. So I'll be talking, yeah, at at an event or in a cafe or something, and someone will go, and yeah, they know know the podcast. So funny. That's like, do you remember the voiceover for Desperate Housewives? Oh, yeah, yeah. It took me a second. Apparently he, like, couldn't go to a cafe without someone (laughs) (laughs) recognising this very, like, dramatic, unique voice. So maybe that's you now. (laughs) But it it feels really powerful. And I wonder, like, I guess kind of as women, I hate to generalise women, female skills and male skills, but as women we do often have strength in conversation and communication and so the fact that podcasting has has really given a boost to so many women's voices doesn't feel like a coincidence no and it's um yeah women women are good conversationally they are generally they are and we like we're just told to be quiet all the time and 
we talked over all the time and it's nice it's nice to have a space for two women not just pandora and i but you know call your girlfriend or the guilty feminist or emma gannon or you you know all these women that are doing these great podcasts having these brilliant honest conversations it's nice to hear them not have to speak fast before someone's going to talk over them or, or apologize yeah. or feel self-conscious or sor- say sorry if they're if they're talking too much or it's a really um it's a really relaxing reassuring great empowering emboldening thing and yeah women are just acing it it's um i can't remember elizabeth what's her name who wrote big magic but she talks about on one of her podcasts actually how actually we're really the probably the first generation of women to have that voice and certainly like yeah I know like my mum my mum's generation kind of they possibly could have done but didn't it didn't exist and certainly before that they had no public voice you you were not you were never heard you were not heard in print you were not heard anywhere really yeah exactly yeah it's an incredible change really in a short space of time and it gives me kind of hope for the next generation of girls growing up that they are hearing these yeah, conversations. Exactly. It's it's an incredible change and it's a great privilege and responsibility. And it's something Pandora and I are increasingly aware of. You know, we're now up to about 40,000 listeners a week. And we're, you know, it's so funny. The first live show that we did on Monday, we walked in and there was not one man in the <laughs> audience, 70 women. And a lot of them were very young. And it's something... You know, Pandora and I would never be uh, imperious or arrogant enough to call ourselves kind of role models or assume any sort of ambassadorial role for young women or speak on behalf of all women. But we do also know that it is a space of influence and we take that seriously. So we're very measured before we talk about our stances and opinions on political stories. Mm. We're measured with the sto- our personal stories that we tell. We're very aware of having diversity on the show. We do author specials and we're constantly looking out for new books to make sure that we can have a good mix of women of colour and trans women and, you know, be inclusive women of different backgrounds. Um, and also Pandora and I are both, you know, privately educated posh white blonde women so we're very aware of that and we're very aware of not being inaccessible so it's something we take very seriously and it's nice to have that responsibility and I'm sure sometimes we will mess up or we won't we know we'll need to reassess stuff for a moment um, or make mistakes but it's uh, a process I'm enjoying and that's part of the, the joy of it I suppose is that we can we can mess up and then we can pick ourselves up and keep going and keep experimenting because it's a new it's a new medium and it's a new way of communicating with people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we're in the early stages of it and it's exciting. But how, how are you managing then to keep all of these different things spinning at the same time, all these plates you've got in the air? I love that you're asking me that as a mother. You must be like, <laughs> this is plate spinner. I've only just got the hang of it, truly. I've only just got the hang of it. I don't have much space in my life for a number of things now that 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 had much more. It had much more space when I was younger, so I, I'm not. I don't have room for pottering anymore, which is sad. Right. So that so I don't have time to go for a nice long walk on Hampstead Heath, or you know, sit on Pinterest and browse, or mm-hmm. just curl up under a blanket, you know, one rainy afternoon with a book, or um, 
you know, wander around the shop. I, I love pottering, you know, try, try one afternoon just to make a new recipe just for the hell of it or bake a cake. Yes. Whatever. I don't yes. have, I don't have space in my life for impromptu relaxate pottering, but I just don't, that's not there. I don't date or have any kind of relationships. I don't, uh, friends are, are really important to me. So I, I mean, so friends, I'll always make sure are scheduled in very tightly in, I won't kind of negotiate on that because I need them for my mental health and also I want to know how they are. But also they provide a, a lot of my confidence and material as a writer as well. I don't see my family enough. I don't go home enough and I'd like to exercise more. So that's really where I'm compromised if I'm being completely honest. I'd love to say that I have a really balanced life. I don't. I definitely do too much work, but I do sleep, which is really important to me. Um, as I said, I do see my friends and I do look after my mental health and it won't be like this for eternity. You know, right. the, the, it's how it is right now with the projects I have going on and the fact that I, I need to make a certain amount of money now. So I need to spread myself quite thinly to make sure I hit the amount of money that I'd like to be making. And I think that eases up as you get older, hopefully, if you progress. And also, um, I'm I'm the luckiest girl in the world because there's not one part of my work that I don't do that I don't love. And I've just got there in the last year, up until a year ago, I was still doing stuff I had to do for money or because of contractual obligation. And I'm now at a point where every piece of work that I do pretty much brings me joy. And if my teenage self could see me, she would be jumping for joy. So I don't mind working as hard as I do because it's the life I've created and chosen no one's asked that of me and also it's a great privilege to be doing the work that I do it's great fun who wouldn't want to sit and interview Rosie Huntington Whiteley in their pajamas on FaceTime right who needs hobbies when you can do that for, for work exactly exactly you know I love work I do love work and also I like as most people do it's an obvious thing to say it it makes my downtime all the all the more sweeter. Yes, it's actually it's comforting to hear you say all of this because it's exactly the same for me. Really, I think I think the notion that you can have it all in balance, like I'm sure some people do, but I do think it's it's harmful because there are times, especially when essentially what you've got is a startup business, right? You're in the early days of being freelance. It's up. We're both kind of in our first yeah. like four or five years, so we yeah. are building up our businesses at the moment and that means working a lot of hours and sacrificing yeah. some things in life and also if you don't do it you don't have a colleague yeah. who will and and it's not even you know if I'm up at 2 a.m writing I don't know some ideas for my podcast the next day of the news stories we're going to cover I'm not doing it because someone's I'm doing it because I want to do it I want it to be yes. good you know and that's as you said that's very much how it is at the beginning of a, of a business venture. I went to um, an event at Google and they, they had me fill in this form that they just kind of wanted details about everybody that was there. And they asked about my work and I could give them all this all this information. And then they asked me about hobbies. And I was just like, I've just told you them all. <laughs> like, Twitter? Is Twitter a hobby? Because <laughs> there's no line for me. Yeah, I mean, that I'm quite lucky in that, the, I play guitar and very, very badly, <laughs> really badly. I'm talking only the three finger chords, but I do it every single day. Oh, wow. And I, 
am quite lucky because it is a hobby and I can't do anything else while I'm doing yes. it. So I would encourage everyone, if they can find the time, I know it will be different with you as well, obviously raising a little girl, but if you can find the time to find something that you can do where you can't be engaging in technology or thoughts in your head and you just have to be present in that moment. It's why so many people do running, I suppose, because you can't run and checking your email or checking... But you probably could listen to a work podcast. My brain is already coming up with solutions to that. No, Sarah, we've got to find you something. (laughs) Maybe you should be a crocheter or something. I could listen to podcasts. Piano, I could yeah. try piano. We've got a piano downstairs. Piano. I, I honestly think there's something, I feel my heart rate goes down after 10 minutes of playing guitar every day. I like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't, unless I'm pissed, I don't play it to oh, anyone. Well, I want to hear it's not it like, now. <laughs> it's not like I'm doing the open mic circuit. <laughs> it's literally for my own kind of mental, have a have a moment where it's it's just you know, placing my hands, doing something with my hands, placing my hands on strings and having my head clear. It's very, I suppose it's a sort of meditation in a weird way. Let's talk about the book. Oh, yes, please. So it's out in spring. Yeah. And it's called... Everything I Know About Love. So that sounds like it's going to be quite a long book because I imagine you know an awful lot about love. I've got a proof copy next to me here. Let's have a look. How many pages are we on? It's 300 and... 28 juicy pages of everything I know about love. (laughs) How did it come about? Uh, So I had an idea for a book when I was 25 and I said I was working full time in television at the time, but I had very supportive and brilliant bosses. I saved a bunch of money and I said to them, can I take a month off work? I was lucky I was on freelance contracts, so it didn't, I didn't have holiday days or anything. So I said in between contracts, can I take a month off and I'm going to, write a book and everyone including my parents thought I was insane (laughs) because when I say a bunch of money you know I was 25 it wasn't a lot of money to to take to afford to take a month off and then I wrote a book that just sort of poured out of me I found being 25 very difficult and it was it was sort of the peak of the emotional turmoil that has been my 20s so I wrote this kind of meditation on it this reflection on it so far and I wrote about 50,000 words so I wrote about half a book and it was kind of essays on how to be in your 20s so you know how to do how to deal with the pressures of needing to be knowledgeable all the time or funny all the time how to deal with death anxiety how to deal with career anxiety and I sent it to a couple of agents one of whom is a marvelous woman called Claire Conville who I'd met so funny how fortuitous life can be I went to my friend Emma Jane Unsworth's book launch and at the book launch I met Claire Mm. during the month and Claire and I got to talking and we got on really well and she was like what are you doing in at the moment and I said weirdly enough I'm in the middle of this month off writing a book and she said well please do send it to me so Claire just Claire loved it and she said she said something interesting. She took me out for a really like exactly what I thought the book industry was when I was a teenage girl. She took me for like oysters at Sheikis. <laughs> <laughs> and there was like a 15 year old in being like, oh, look at this glam literary world. <laughs> I've realized that's not the everyday. And she said, I love this book. I don't think it will get published, but it's oh. lovely. And, and then she was just, it, I think it made a real difference that I had an agent from that point onwards because then I kind of just left the book alone for two years 
and did some reflecting. I was very aware as well that it was a supremely arrogant person who, age 25, feels they can write an entire <laughs> manual for how to be in your 20s, you know, when you're only five years in. So I kind of just let that let that rest for a bit and Claire and I kept talking and having dinners and having ideas and just letting stuff mull around and actually I look back on that time now where I wasn't writing and I always think of something a friend of mine said which is sometimes the not writing is as important as the writing oh that's nice yeah and I really think in that time you know as a writer your brain is absorbing stuff and it's having thoughts and there's a kind of unconscious little filing cabinet somewhere in your brain that's that's stockpiling the stories and the thoughts and the feelings and the observations and you know it it is the not writing that's important because one day that will be treasure you can draw on be it in non-fiction or fiction and then about 18 months ago I sat down and and reread all the material, and I thought, thank fuck this <laughs> day. And I, with love, hid it away and deleted it from my desktop, 50,000 words, and then started again. And I decided to write. It's very hard to sell books of essays in England. I don't know why something publishers always say they're, they're much easier to sell in America. Uh, the English market is much more interested in narrative driven memoir so I sat down to write the story of my 20s not really knowing what it was and two major threads came up one of them was the relationship I have with myself and how that manifested in a series of sometimes funny sometimes sad always dysfunctional relationships with men for the last 10 years and then the biggest love of my life you know a love story was the second narrative which is the relationship with my best female friends and with one in particular a girl called Farley and the kind of stories that we've shared and the adventures we've been on in the last 10 years and how our relationship has changed and grown and then that was the book I was off from there that was the stories and then I kind of it's Claire's idea actually to do kind of interludes through these stories um to kind of bring it into a shot. I want, always wanted it to be sort of bittersweet and to act as a foil to these moments of realisation or these emotional arcs, to have these kind of fun interludes. So I have satirical letters and emails <laughs> that are like, you know, the sort of typical wedding invite you get or a baby shower invite for these markers of your 20s. Yes. Some sort of funny lists, some recipes. Yes, they kind of act as kind of pauses the book again very long spiel sorry no I found that fascinating and it makes me very excited to get my hands on a copy thank you I'm literally going to send one to you tomorrow Woo-hoo. I'm also struck by like the amount of self-possession and, and just self-belief that you must have had at 25 to take a month off like to know that you would do it and then to actually sit down and do it and I, I granted then you didn't use the the stuff that you actually wrote but yeah. I think a lot of people would like to write a book, but it never gets even the first word down on the page. Yeah. I just didn't want to be someone who talked about writing a book. I was so aware of that. I just did. I just wanted to do it. I hate feeling like I have no integrity and I felt like I can't say I'm going to write a book or slag off other people's books. Mm. Or do you know what? I can't. 
I need to just fucking try and do it. And also, I'm someone who he is very childish. I only re- react and produce with danger and deadlines. And I knew the only way that I could write that fifty thousand words is I had to be, I had to be, I had there had to be such a high stake. And the stake was my friends and family and my bosses thought I was insane to take a month off work and I had to eat baked beans to eke out for a month, to eke out this small amount of money I'd saved. I had to have that level of pressure. And that's the only way that I did manage to get 50,000 words done. And as you say, even though I didn't use them, it was a great experience. So it made me feel proud of myself and know that I could do it. And I got a kick-ass agent out of it. So... It, I, I had to take that risk personally. I wouldn't advise it for everyone, but I knew Duke Ellington, I think it's Duke Ellington, yes, it is the jazz musician, said, don't give me time, give me a deadline. I'm exactly the same, yes. Really? And I like, I spent a lot of my life really resenting that about myself and battling it and trying to turn myself into Hermione Granger. Totally. But once you realise it about yourself, it's kind of, then you can use it as a tool to get stuff done. Exactly. And also there's no... There's no shame in it. You know, me and my writing partner, Lauren, regularly talk about the fact that our sense of ego must be so much bigger than our sense of art, because the only time she and I ever write anything really not good, but like as in whenever we write something in full or we do it fast is when someone else our age does something and we're really jealous fueled by it it's so bad but I was like you know what fuel is fuel just fucking don't analyze it yeah if it works then it works exactly life is too short (laughs) I guess that kind of leads into the other question I had we talk a lot on this podcast about self-doubt and how it manifests and how it can get in our way and speaking to you you don't sound like someone with an awful lot of self-doubt but everything I know tells me that everybody gets it so where's it hiding where does it show up in your life in my therapist's office. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm very glad that I'm giving the impression of someone without self-doubt. Of course, I'm like every, anyone. I'm riddled with it. But I've got to get better with it because I this book, this book will kill me if I allow the demon of self-doubt to eat me as it has done mm. in the past. If I allow myself to lie in bed every single night imagining you know hordes of people talking about how Dolly Alderton is an embarrassment to the publishing industry or imagining you know someone imagining my editor at Penguin saying this was the biggest regret <laughs> of my life this book, or imagining someone laughing at me or thinking of all the bad reviews or questioning myself and and picking it up in the middle of the night and rereading it and going why did I write that or that's stupid that sentence or why did I reveal that why did I expose that I could have worded that better and that has been my life Sarah honestly as it has been for nearly every female I know for the last 10 years and I refuse to do it anymore I can't do it anymore and do you know why I can't do it anymore this is the main reason it's boring (laughs) it is and exhausting about itself absorbed and I cannot there are so many things in life to be questioning and worrying about and thinking about and learning about other than is my work good enough what do people think of me I mean what a privilege Mm. it is to spend sleepless nights thinking about that how how indulgent you know and I'm being I'm speaking harshly because it's a realization I've had recently and a lot of my friends have have shaken me a bit with it 
and I, I don't want to live in an echo chamber of just me, myself, my own content and how people perceive it and what the quality of it is. You know, it, life is so rich and diverse and beautiful. There are so many more things to be thinking about. So I, obviously there will always be moments of reflection and, and doubt, as you say, and hopefully celebration as well. But I don't want it to occupy my whole brain. I want to, I want, I want to aspire to something higher. I love that because it means that you just get out of your own way and get the work exactly, done. Exactly, exactly. And then when it's done, then you get to enjoy it instead of beat yourself up with it. Yeah, and learn lessons, you know, learn lessons rather than second guess it constantly. Go, well, maybe that was right or wrong or maybe I could have done that better. How do I do it better? Done, move on. I mean, I'm saying this, it, it's it's easy for me to say this, you know, bright and early on a Friday <laughs> with the sun coming through my window, drinking a coffee and having a lovely conversation with a lovely woman. I'm sure there will still be those moments in the middle of the night where I find myself in tears or not being able to sleep or, or feeling very, very anxious. And, but I, I can't be defined by them anymore. I don't want to, I, I want a long career of creating and I don't want it to be defined by that anymore. That is such an amazing and inspiring note to end on. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Where can people find you online if they want to come and check out more? You can find me on Dolly Alderton on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can sign up to my newsletter on my website, which is dollyalderton.com. And you can listen to my podcast, The High Low, on Acast, or you can download on iTunes. And you can follow my podcast on Twitter, the, at The High Low Show. I'll stick links to all of those in the show notes as well, so people can click over. Those very show notes are available now at meandola.co.uk forward slash podcast 30. And both Dolly and I would really love to hear your thoughts and your responses to what we've talked about in this episode, either on Twitter or on Instagram. And do check out Dolly's podcast, The High Low. And while you're in your podcast app, maybe you could leave me a cheeky little review. I'm really close to 100 reviews on this podcast and even numbers, they just bring me a sense of peace. So I would be very grateful. Thank you for listening and have an awesome week.